0: What's up nerds, thanks for being here. Today I talk with my friend, Dr. Zach Bowden, an assistant professor of theological studies and a scholar in the field of church history and American Christianity. We talk about some of his recent work, the value of historical theology in the life of the churches, and some of our formative experiences in theological education. He also deliberately calls me Chad at several points in the episode, but he also admits that his favorite part of his time in seminary was being my friend. Thanks for listening. All right, well, welcome, Zach. Thanks for being here. Uh, Today we're going to discuss some of your work in church history and historical theology. But first, let me ask you, what got you started in historical theology and church history? Have you always been interested in history? Did you always knew that one day you'd be a whiz-bang historical theologian? Or was it a winding journey? You can talk about the depth of your friendship with me or how big of an encouragement I've been to you, The you know, the floor is yours.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Chad. Um, uh, no, no, I was uh, not interested in church history growing up. I wasn't bookish at all, very much a video game kid. Very good at it, still very good at it now. But I would say it was all seminary. It was all mm-hmm. seminary that really got me turned on to church history, just in terms of that was my first class in seminary. At 8 a.m., I remember it very well. And from there, I was just kind of hooked because it just seemed to me that you could really do everything you could ever want to do within church history. It just covers absolutely everything from hermeneutics to theology to thinking about the nature of the pastoral office to everything in between. Church history really hit it all, but it hit it within the context of these really great, fascinating stories stories that actually happened and so kind of from a general church history class I ended up taking courses on Martin Luther who I absolutely fell in love with and didn't know squat about going into seminary and then going on to take classes with Robert Caldwell and his focus was on American evangelicalism Jonathan Edwards in particular and then I was just I was hooked. I I couldn't get enough of it. And I still feel today that it's one of the things I love talking about the most, but I feel like I even bore my former church history professors. Like, I I mean, they're even like, no, that's enough church history, Zach. Mm -hmm. And it's just something I've always just been enthusiastic about ever since seminary and have kind of tried to incorporate it any way I can and in anything I do.
0: Yeah, that's good. You mentioned um, being able to do everything in the study of church history. One popular or definition of church history is uh, viewing church history as the history of interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, like, would you would you say that that's part of what you're interested in um, in church history, or or would you combine that with a genuine interest in like the historical context or like? How, how do you relate those, like a emphasis on maybe like historical theology or biblical interpretation um, throughout the different ages uh, or the historical context or the embeddedness of some of these figures and movements uh, in church history? Uh, yeah, it's both and. I mean, when I think about that first church history class
1: I had with Jason Lee, he was always very good about making sure that we had a very hermeneutical focus in terms of what was going on, especially most memorably with somebody like Luther. Uh, but when I think about it, even now I think about it in terms of the fact that one of the best reasons for studying church history is just simply the fact that we're not the first people to read our Bibles. Mm-hmm. And that's really comforting and liberating. So the fact that, for instance, I can read John along with Augustine, it helps me see how he's reading the scriptures, but then also contextually, He's having to deal with John in light of this huge Donatist problem, which influences how he preaches, as it should, because that's his context. He has to deal with this real issue of this split from the church and what that means for his congregants who might be tempted to break away from the Catholic church. And so it kind of helps you see how he is dealing with the text of John while also being mindful of his own context and the challenges that he's facing. And you kind of see that from any other theologian you might pick of just how the context is kind of being situated to how they're preaching on a particular biblical passage. And I think that that's the fun of it too, is, 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 is it's not just looking at mere interpretation as such, but trying to kind of put flesh and blood on their hermeneutics in their own situation and at, at a minimum rather before rendering judgment saying well why are they doing it in this way at this time And that's a really fun exciting question to be able to answer
0: mm-hmm. yeah because like you mentioned uh with augustine um he's engaging in the uh some of these uh, debates and discussions but he's also continually preaching and teaching um so this mm-hmm. is kind of uh, this relationship between what's going on in his uh, immediate context and uh, what he's doing uh, in his church ministry context, um, they're difficult to to isolate, to separate. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you mentioned here, we've talked to, uh, in your kind of uh, discussion, uh, some of the early church era and the Reformation era, uh, but in the recent book that I wanted us to kind of uh, talk about, uh, the recent book, Historical Theology for the Church from b and uh, you have an essay uh, on the church in the medieval era. Um, so uh, one of, I just wanted to see if you could tell us uh, what are you doing in this essay, and then like, why study the medieval era this closely? Um, what stood out to you when thinking about the church uh, in this particular era of church history? I was super grateful to get the opportunity to do it and
1: one of the reasons I was so excited to do it is just because of how much I don't know about the medieval era and if anything after finishing the chapter just realizing the unexplored ocean that still remains with the whole medieval era but looking at it I think one of the things that as soon as you kind of start reading is just the pervasiveness of the church particularly for the West is the fact that there's really not a lot of places you can go where where the church isn't speaking into a particular area of your life. So it's kind of hard to imagine kind of a purely secular sphere of the world at the time. And that is what I think was so intriguing about it and also so daunting and it's, it was a good reminder just in terms of thinking about it as a historical theology that whether it's patristic or medieval or the Reformation, it's not as if sometimes we, when we teach theology, it's almost seems like theology, ca- theological categories are hermetically sealed off from one another. You have Christology and it's here. You have pneumatology and it's here. When you look in the medieval period, it would be inconceivable to think about salvation outside of the church or, you know, new outside of any other type of, I mean, they're all a mm-hmm. nexus, they're all interweaved, and so that you see that kind of cropping itself up all throughout the medieval period, so when you're talking about the church, you're, you're talking about a lot of things, mm-hmm. doctrinally, theologically, uh, at the same time. And just, yeah, that, yeah that, and go ahead.
0: That, though I was just gonna say that's something <laughs> that I noticed about uh, the book as a whole, the his, uh, the essays in historical theology, Uh, And then your chapter in particular, uh, when you're talking about a particular doctrinal loci like uh, the church or salvation in these different eras or um, uh, the nature of uh, eschatology or something like that, you're forced to say lots of things at once, uh, right, and figuring out uh, that. And so I hear you saying, too, that there's something about the medieval era uh, and this period of church history uh, that's going on in the relationship between church and state that makes that even more complex. Uh, but I think it's helpful uh, to work, to to think through that because this is something that is uh, important to reckon with uh, when you're just doing theology or systematic theology or dogmatic theology, the interrelationship between uh, the not just the disciplines, but the individual areas of study, the loci. Right. Um, But then thinking to say something true about the church in the medieval era or in these particular ways, um, you're really having to say something about the theology of God and theology of salvation uh, and the way that those are intersecting and colliding in this particular era. Yeah. Why do you think um, there is um, an evangelical neglect of the medieval era? You mentioned this a little while ago. But it's, you know, the dark ages or this uh, typically in a typical church, if they're doing church history, um, you might jump from, you know, Augustine to Luther uh, (laughs) and jump to Billy Graham or something. Um, Yeah. uh, What are some of the things that, or what are some of the reasons why you think that that neglect happens or some of the unique difficulties of, uh, thinking about the medieval, or you mentioned some of the some of these already, but uh, you have any general thoughts there?
1: Yeah, I think a variety of levels. One, simply, it's weird for our modern sensibilities. A lot of stuff going on in the medieval period is weird, and some of it is really difficult to deal with because it is such a creative period. Theologically, mm-hmm. that we don't know quite what to do with developments going on with the person of Mary. My gosh, what do we do with the Crusades? What do we do with the development of the papacy? And especially for Protestant ears, these things sound really strange. And the knee jerk reaction can be well, they can be of no benefit to us, as well intended as that may be. And also, just by the fact that it's a huge chunk of history. I mean, right. you know, historians debate. When it begins and when it ends. But let's just say, for instance, you take it beginning at 500, ending at 1500. If you do the math on it, it's a thousand years. Mm-hmm. And so that's a huge span of time that's tremendously intimidating to deal with. And that's only if you're dealing with the West, not to mention throwing in everything that's going on with the East as well. And so I think all of that together can just make us kind of loathe and, and there's kind of what, what are we going to say about uh, this era that you know, and again, like you said, the Dark Ages caricature, as historians like Stephen Oseman have shown, like, well, there's only a little tiny slice that's really dark, because the Middle Ages is immensely creative. I mean, most of the things we have today are coming out of the medieval period, the Middle Ages. And so a lot of it's kind of dispelling the myth and the caricature. And once we kind of start to dive in, we see, oh, this is a really, really fascinating period that's Mm -hmm. very instructive for us.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that one of the ways to dispel that, uh, the myth, the myth of the medieval era as uh, the Dark Ages is just start to start exploring in it. Um, so that's some, some of the work that uh, you did in your chapter, um, just seeing some of the fascinating figures and then thinking through the way in which they dealt with th- not just um, social problems, but historical issues and historical Questions, um, you mentioned uh, two figures in your chapter. Uh, is something along the lines of a tale of two Gregories. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the? Uh, who are these Gregories, and um, how are they uh, an example of the value of studying this era?
1: Well, I think just in the sense that when you come with the first Gregory, Gregory the Great, who sometimes dubbed kind of the first medieval pope who's one of the great doctors of the latin church kind of seen as the first missionary pope who sends out missionaries to england but when you look at him you see somebody who really develops the papacy significantly and this is one of the areas i want to do more reading on but it just seems like a lot of what happens in the development of the papacy happens by this kind of unfurling of precedent Mm -hmm. it's not that Gregory the Great was necessarily looking to accumulate power, it's just the fact that there was a power vacuum in Rome, and Gregory was the only one capable of filling it, and so he kind of takes on more of these civil responsibilities in addition to his uh, ecclesiological responsibilities, But, but Gregory really does see himself as a servant of the servants of God, and what I find interesting about that is just... A helpful reminder that Protestants can learn things from popes, and that shouldn't be a radical thing to say. But I think sometimes that mm-hmm. sounds strange to us because of this issue of kind of ecclesiastical tribalism. Mm-hmm. We, we we couldn't possibly learn anything from any pope of any period because of our issues with the papacy itself. But with Gregory and his wonderful book uh, *Pastoral Rule*, uh, one of the things he said in there that's always stuck with me is his concern for monks, uh, future pastors, eventually uh, not to ruin your doctrine with your life, not to mm-hmm. trample on your doctrine with your life. Mm-hmm. And that's a really helpful reminder, I think, for all of us uh, going into, into the ministry, mm-hmm. any type of ministerial office. But when you compare that with Hildebrand, who would become Gr- Gregory the Seventh, what you find is somebody who is very much concerned about reforming the church. And I think that's also one of the helpful things about the medieval period is you find the drive for reformation doesn't start with Luther, but mm-hmm. all throughout the medieval, medieval period, there are these moves to reform the church or these right. concerns for the purity of the church. And Gregory the Seventh has that. But the easiest means for him to reform the church is to accumulate all power within the papacy. And so, because of that, he makes himself kind of this supreme pontiff on earth and is the exact opposite of Gregory the Great. Right. Is that Gregory the Great really sees his office as trying to embody this Christ like ideal of service? Whereas for Gregory the Seventh, it's very much acquiring every semblance of power, ecclesiastical or civil uh, on earth. And so you kind of see a tale of, of two guys in the same office who go down very different paths. Mm-hmm. Granted that by the time you get to Gregory VII, the precedent of the papacy has grown a lot, and Gregory's really able to bring that all together in himself. So two different visions of what the Pope should do, two visions of what church reform looks like. Uh, they're very helpful compare and contrast in terms of uh, the the papacy but all sort of kind of ministerial models as well
0: yeah yeah because you even the way you uh, described it two different uh, eras essentially in the way that the the church is functioning uh, but at the same time still an instructive comparison and contrast of yep. leadership styles and what they were able to do uh, within the framework of their uh, context so i really appreciated the The bringing those uh, two figures out uh, because they're a um, they kind of exemplify uh, the value of thinking about the medieval era because the these Gregories are not ones that you would typically run across in (laughs) Sunday school or even even Uh, a a Indiv curriculum Um, so um, I think that's helpful as well so because I think sometimes it's hard as we're thinking about uh, learning from those, from our different traditions, um, however hard that is for us in a uh, contemporary era, uh, looking back and, and specifying maybe in the medieval era or the Reformation era, uh, seeing examples of that, both good and bad, uh, can kind of <clears throat> be a way for us to kind of do that, even if, it's, uh, even if the people we're listening to are in the past. Maybe right. train our muscles to able to do that with when yeah. we disagree with uh you know today yeah so like to transition from just kind of the more general question uh the book that this essay is in you know historical theology for the church and mm-hmm. of course for some that would be a misnomer like uh, like uh what are you talking about how can uh th- historical theology be for the church in a way that's not just pedantic or in a way that's not just sourcing your own tradition mm-hmm. So more broadly, um, as you've thought about this over the years since your doctoral work and some of your initial readings through um, the way that you have done this in the churches, uh, in various ministry contexts for students and in scholarship, uh, what would you say is just generally the value of church history or historical theology, someone asking the question, why would I need this uh, if I'm struggling to read my Bible or do theology, uh, what, what what is the uh, broad value of uh, this type of study, historical theology, or even just church history in general, for pastors, students, or interested uh, church members? What, what are some of the things that uh, you would say?
1: Yeah, well, I think one of the things is just once you dive into church history, it reminds the ones struggling with reading their Bibles that they're not the first person to struggle with reading their Bibles is that some of the great theologians we look up to had those struggles at different, different points of their life or had a variety of doubts about the faith or the nature of their own lives and dark nights of the soul and things like that. I mean, I always just come back to this idea that we're not the first people to read our Bibles, and because of that, we have this wonderful tradition that we can go back and see how they've been working out questions that we have to ask ourselves every single day. So in a sense, with church history and historical theology, you just have to face, well, why would you reinvent the wheel? Is you don't have to start from a blank page. You have a wealth of information before you, and it all just kind of reminds us what John Webster taught us, that theology is always done within the domain of the church, is that kind of church history testifies to that time and time and time again. And so, for instance, when you think about one day, you're probably going to be sitting in a local church. And you're going to be passing a plate of crackers down the aisle, and maybe you're going to have a kid, and they're going to think it's snack time, and they're going to grab something, and they're going to grab a cracker, and perhaps you're going to say no. Well, then you have to explain that whole situation to that kid. That's a theological question with a whole lot of significance, but that question has been answered over and over and over again throughout the history of the church in terms of what is the supper, what is the nature of the presence of Christ there all of these questions, and they've already been answered in a variety of ways And we get to kind of enter into that conversation. Why wouldn't you want to take advantage of that conversation? But regardless of how it explicitly comes out in teaching ministries or anything like that, we can see how the church has wrestled with these issues, and so it reminds us, too, that the issues we keep seeing come up over and over again throughout the history of the church kind of help key us into what what are the significant things we should be looking at what, what are the main things we should be worrying about within our churches
0: yeah yeah i like that because we familiar with the idea of church history is really the history of interpretation um historical theology uh digging into some of the implications of different readings of the scriptures but i like the point you made that not only are we not the first ones to read the scriptures or read paul we're also not the first ones to struggle uh, to read our, the scriptures and struggle to uh, relate the meaning of the text um, to our current ministry context, whatever's going on. Um, so I, I like that added dimension of not just a history of interpretation, but also a history of uh, the reception of these texts. So a reception history of a community that's uh, grappling with these things and sh- struggling and fighting to grow in Christian maturity as well. I read the new bio
1: of Carl Bart, and we all know Carl Bart was a professor. And so so for us as professors, you form with an eye, we know the pressure of having to get lectures ready and get ready for the classroom. But it was one of the most fascinating things about reading this Bart bio is every time he moved to a different university, he would always emphasize how unprepared he felt, mm. how everything was always last minute prep. He never felt ready. I mean, these are things I hear us tell each other all the time. Right, yeah, exactly. And here's like arguably the most significant theologian of the 20th century saying the exact same thing. And that's my word. That's really refreshing. Mm-hmm. That is really refreshing to hear. Here's this guy, this, this titan, and he's having the same kind of academic uh, classroom woes uh, that professors right. still have today. And I think there's there, even that, this little detail, man, that's helpful to know
0: yeah yeah so just broad patterns but also specific uh vignettes or anecdotes uh that can help uh encourage us in the task um and then also shape kind of how we interact with those things yeah excellent um yeah and as we're thinking about um just the process of thinking about uh, the meaning of the text in light of the the way that the church has Uh, receive those texts and that theology. We've talked before, um, you've been uh, thinking about this idea of uh, reflexes uh, in church history. Uh, What are some of the, like tease that out for me, like what do you mean when you talk about and teach about uh, reflexes in the history of interpretation?
1: Yeah, well I think of it in terms of a lot like, you know, the guy behind you, Spider-Man, and when I think of Spider-Man, I naturally think of Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man as far as I'm concerned. He's the goat of the Spider-Man, of the superheroes. There's really no Marvel universe without Tobey Maguire in my estimation. Mm-hmm. But when you think about you think about that great scene in the movie where he's walking to the cafeteria and he's just got his spider powers and he slips and then he kind of reflexively grabs everything on the right. lunch tray. That's kind of what he reflexively does. And so thinking about when we read the Bible where do we kind of reflexively go in our mind in terms of interpretation? Mm -hmm. And I like to take that question to different Bible interpreters. So for instance, to go back to Augustine, if you kind of read through his homilies on John, you find his reflexes, for instance, to be very, very different from mine. And it was John Webster who really kind of put this point out because John Webster, it seems his whole project is trying to get us to reflexively begin with God. Over and over and over again. He's kind of always kind of making that point that just naturally because of our need for a redeemed intelligence, we're never starting at the right point. You've got to start back here, reflexively go back here. And I think you see that kind of played out in church history is where with Augustine, he'll be talking about in John's gospel, Jesus calling Philip, you know, here's a man and Israelite whom there's no guile. And then Augustine will just kind of dive into this conversation about what guile is and discuss kind of its two-sidedness, or he will start talking about Jesus and he will inevitably go Christological. He will go to the nature of the incarnation. He, He just has these different types of instincts where even if we would say they're wrong, they kind of wake us up to ask, well, what are, what are my instincts? Right. Or how am I handling a particular passage is, is do I need to read in such a way to where that muscle memory changes mm-hmm. and doing things more ad- automatic uh, that I'm not doing? Because as we read more and more of these, these interpreters of the scriptures, it helps us refine and, and kind of think more about our own reflexes. So in terms it it makes us it makes us better Bible readers.
0: Right. Yeah, I like that idea too because sometimes when we look uh, to a different era of uh, church history of interpretation, we can look at some of their readings and think one this is foreign, um, and then you know if we're if we're thinking about uh, dipping lucky dipping into church history just for like their interpretation of a particular text. Um, instead of working through an entire work from them. Uh, So like what you're saying, I I like that an emphasis on historical theology and church history would give you the tools in which not only to dip into one particular place where Augustine makes a comment on a text, uh, but also to um, process or uh, encounter what Augustine is doing in his homilies or what he's doing in some of his polemical work. Um, So, as you said, so you can kind of pick up on uh, not just the individual interpretations, but those reflexes, those, um, the ways in which those patterns that start to develop um, in particular situations. Uh, And I like the way that you said uh, this, you know, a answer to the question of how can, reading and thinking about church history and historical theology helped me in my ministry. It can, one, as you identify the reflexes of a different era, uh, it'll help you at the very least ask the question, uh, what are some of the reflexes that are specific to me and then also our era as interpreters, but also as preachers? Like, what do we care about? How are we engaging you know, the cultural moment?
1: Well, I think that, that preaching point's a good one because you know, when you think of C.S. Lewis's famous warning that we're all in danger of becoming chronological snobs, we can think of that in a very general level of we're just not going to read old stuff. But that can also manifest itself in terms of well, we don't preach that way anymore, so we shouldn't follow the homiletical style of this is since we're talking about him, Augustine, for instance, because that was a different era, a different time. It's not going to really apply for modern sensibilities. Mm-hmm. And to, that might be true to some degree, but also when you think about Augustine, this trained rhetorician, brilliant trained rhetorician, he'll start his sermons by just very simply saying, hey guys, this is what we covered last week, and I don't have time to get into it all again, so here we go. And again, the, the, there's something kind of refreshing about the fact that Augustine's not so pressed about having kind of the right polished introduction or the right story. Mm-hmm. He's just very much concerned about getting into uh, the scripture itself and going forward. And, or thinking about the fact that, well, he might get allegorical here. Oh, well, that's just totally wrong. And we got kind of snobbish about it. But, no, well, what is he doing and why is he doing it? And is there something fruitful there that we can still harvest? So it's always kind of even checking our own snobbery, even when we like to read old stuff, like Lewis encourages us, that snobbery can sometimes run deeper deeper than we know.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to affirm that I think – I do think that your snobbery runs deeper than you're aware. Um... Oh, my gosh. This is where the interview breaks down. Um yeah, no, I I really like that uh answer. Um well cool. yeah, it's a good one. Well, <laughs> I'm not cutting this stuff out, you know. It's you should. Just why wouldn't you? It. Why wouldn't you? Uh well, yeah, just even like thinking the way that you might use a historical figure like Augustine, since we're um we're fixating on Augustine here, there we're we gonna become um, I don't know anything about it. <laughs> but the, like the way to utilize, uh, say, Augustine, Augustine's homilies as you're preparing to preach. I mean, I remember when you were preaching several times uh, from the Gospel of John, and you're reading through some of uh, Augustine's homilies, uh, not necessarily for a, like you would a modern commentary, where you're thinking, okay, what, I have a textual problem that I need solved, so let me go to Augustine, but rather, you're, you're in the text, you're doing the work that you're to prepare to preach, Uh, But then you're also reading like uh, Augustine's reflection on these texts and then just kind of uh, grappling with some of the theological realities that he's talking about in dialogue with those texts. Um, And then when you go up to preach, uh, some of those, as you mentioned before, instincts or reflexes uh, show up in your preaching, even in the way that you uh, kind of bring home a particular point or... Uh, appeal to the heart in a particular way um because I, I remember when you were preaching on uh, passage john 14 or 16 on the spirit um, and the relationship between the father and son and we were talking about augustine and what he was doing with those texts for like a couple weeks and then i heard uh, echoes of our conversation in uh the sermon that you preached um not necessarily like quoting Augustine necessarily, but that those, some of those moves uh, that help you, uh, you know, even just turn to the uh, to the hearers and ask the question, um, "Is this true for you?" Right, which is something that you might not have uh, just naturally picked, uh, been able to do if you were only thinking through, you know, what are the exegetical commentaries, and then let me make apply this point. Um, So allowing the atmosphere or residue of the interpreters of a different era come with us into the pulpit uh, in those ways.
1: But I think you make a good point in the sense that it's just the value of reading, not for just having a litany of quotes, but just for the fact that that reading is shaping you in ways you're probably not even cognizant of. Right. But it is kind of molding you into something different. And I think Tim Keller said this, but he said, you know, it takes about reading 100 different authors for you to kind of figure out your own voice. And I think there's a lot of truth to that is is the value of inhabiting the whole Christian tradition uh, to kind of help you kind of make sense of how to uh, read and declare the scriptures in the time God has called us to. And so I think that's just one reason why it's so valuable to keep on reading them is mm-hmm. even if you don't explicitly quote them, you they're they're probably kind of there to to some degree in some fashion.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a good point too, of thinking about uh trying to make use of the whole tradition uh, of the great tradition rather than only focusing or fixating on a particular figure uh that comes to have an inordinate amount of influence on your teaching or preaching or or thinking. Um, So broadening that even in your study of historical theology will then help you as you, it will fund your teaching, your preaching, and your thinking uh, even today. Good, good. Uh, Well, one of the things that I'm always interested in with uh, guests or other people as uh, thinking about a moment or a method uh, that you encountered that made a big impact on you uh, in your time as a student. Uh, and then also maybe as, uh, as a, um, uh, you know, as a teacher, what are some of the things that have stood out to you as things that you really like to do or things that have made an impact on you as you have gone about the, the teaching task?
1: Well, I mean, I just had, I had so many good teachers and still have so many good teachers and, the one that pops out of my mind is the one we talk about all the time. And that's where we were sitting in John Taylor's new Testament survey class. And he started at 7. PM there in Fort Worth hall or Scarborough hall, whichever one it was. And he started kind of walking us through the gospel of John, Mm -hmm. walking us through and taking us through this trial motif. And by the end, by nine o'clock, for those who had ears to hear he basically turned it on us and asked us, well, we're on trial, mm-hmm. and do you believe? And I think about that moment all the time. I mean, that was the worth the price of my entire seminary education, and I wouldn't say he did anything necessarily fanciful. Is He just, just kind of just walked us through and, and brought us through John in such a way that it made us feel the force of the question, mm-hmm. do you believe? That's the question that you have to reckon with in your own mm-hmm. life, and it was a question that was posed to presumably a bunch of Christians who were training to be ministers in some form or fashion, but it was still a question that we needed to hear. And so, it's just, it, it, it's, I think about that all the time, just in terms of that moment and how that moment came to be, and the work of the spirit in that moment, mm-hmm. and just kind of those those unexpected moments that you kind of have to be willing to give yourself to when, when you're a student is that you have to be able right. to be willing to go along for the ride. You have to have docility. You have to be willing to be teachable, but mm-hmm. you also got to have a lot of, you know, Aaron Burr and you as well and be willing to wait for it. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be willing to wait for those moments. Right. And, and there were just so many uh, at seminary.
0: Yeah. I mean, we've talked about that all the time yeah i mean um i mean that i feel like that's might be why it was memorable for you but well um, you were asleep (laughs) yeah well there there were some people that were asleep i remember um i was actually talking to my one of my classes about this we're talking about theological and biblical studies um are not only about uh, data collection and retention. So as they're taking notes, that biblical and theological studies is a contemplative task. It's a reflective okay. discipline. Uh, but if that's the case, sometimes you have to work through the setup or the framework in which a you know a magical teaching moment happens. Mm-hmm. And I remember the the way you described it was really helpful because there was a lot of setup. And in, in some ways, it it was set up, but it was laboring he he used a a certain theme or motif and he labored through the entirety of the gospel. He was showing us a way in which the gospel fit together, but also developing that. Because I thought about that moment when he turned and it was like it wasn't only a pedagogical trick, like the card trick that you were trying to show me earlier. It wasn't just a teaching method. He had done the work of connecting what he was talking about to the shape And feel of John's gospel as a whole. So when he made that turn, it was a turn that John himself has made. Um, And so like, I just remember that coming together, the weight of that question coming through in a way that I don't think we would have experienced if we hadn't have labored along with him, right? Because I know the guy that was processing email sitting beside me uh, did not, because when it got to nine o'clock, his watch beeped. And then he looked up and then started packing up his stuff and then just kind of sat there. Like, uh, and that was the moment we were going over time. Yeah. And that was the moment when for me, I mean, my heart was burning in the sense yeah. of I was, I was feeling the force of this, but if you hadn't have been along for the ride in that sense, like, yeah. like you said, you would have never, uh, you would have never experienced that. You would have missed it, but it, it took work. It took work for him to do it as a teacher, but it also took the work of us to actually be locked in in that moment, and um, I wasn't always locked in in our class. But I am glad that um, I, I am glad that I was locked in in that moment. The example you gave here as a good example as you know what you, what we're trying to do as uh, professors thinking through Bible and theology. But it also is a call. It's a call for the students to you have to want that as well.
1: Yeah, I mean. I want to be clear that I was completely locked in, Dr. Taylor, every second. (laughs) And number number two is that, I think of it in terms of in the Jason Bourne series, when they're trying to brainwash him, they kind of ask him over and over again, do you give yourself to this program? And I really think that's the question a student has to be willing to answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It's like, do you give yourself to this program? And when I think about Taylor's class, it was not a kind of technological disney show if i remember right and you can correct me if i'm right he would give us these handouts and they would be you know john and then it would kind of be the outline yeah yeah and that's what he would walk through and this isn't this isn't a technology in the classroom point but this is just to say that this kind of thing can work mm-hmm. if you're willing to give yourself to it and it's just for for us in our generation the moment we were in powerpoint wasn't as big of a thing i don't think then as it probably is now or just kind of the the media has changed so dramatically because we're so old, but just to kind of show you a willingness to, to hear what's going on and a, a eagerness for the subject uh, that can go a really, really long way. And And it pays off. It pays off.
0: Yeah. And thinking as the, um, as a professor seeking to communicate and connect with students, uh, and students seeking to, uh, give themselves to the program of study. And then that that's where f- real formative uh, moments can happen.
1: Uh, yeah. Right.
0: That's good. Well, you remember he
1: would always tell us, you know, guys, you got to give yourself to the academic discipline. Mm-hmm. That's what this yeah. is. And, and I still hear that all the time. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's a good example of friend. We, you know, we joke about it, but friendships forged in the midst of uh, thinking, uh, uh, training for ministry and ministry itself. Yeah. Um, are in some ways just as formative uh, the people that you come along with and come up with uh, in some ways just as formative um, as the uh, instruction we receive for sure any other any other thoughts that you would uh, uh, want to say about the role of historical theology uh, in the life of the church in the life of the uh, pastor or seminary student or someone training in biblical studies
1: Yeah, I think just in terms of the fact that uh, the more we study historical theology and the more we study church history, I think the more and more it it humbles us, the more and more it kind of shows us and and it kind of proves over and over again the preacher from Ecclesiastes that nothing's new under the sun. Mm -hmm. And it it kind of shows us as Rowan Williams said this so beautifully as he used kind of a short book on church history and he says basically if I'm reading first Corinthians 13 right is I'm a debtor to a host of people Mm -hmm. with all of these God-given gifts and I don't know where my debts begin and I don't know where my debts end and so one of the things that church history does is it reminds us how how grateful we should be with the fact that we are where we are and we have this wealth of a tradition to draw on it is not it is not a burden for us to bear but it is it is this wonderful treasure you know we can dive in like scrooge mcduck and swim around and inhabit and kind of really kind of treating it as as, as the treasure it is mm-hmm. um for 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 life in ministry i mean for life i mean I want to know how Augustine keeps on believing to the end. Mm-hmm. Not easy. You know, it's not a given. And so how do these guys remain faithful to the end and gals remain faithful to the end in all these different difficult contexts? it's It's always bears repeating.
0: Yeah, that's a good word. That's a good word for us to end on. And I hope honestly that this conversation has led to you recognizing what a treasure our friendship is.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. We did it. Is any of that usable? We did it.
0: There's no telling in terms there's of at least, any- There's at least, I mean, there's at least a 15-minute episode in there somewhere.